You're listening to Religion Matters. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is our second season, if you want to call it that, of Religion Matters. Uh, This is the podcast that talks about the issues surrounding religion and how these intersect with other aspects of our lives. Um, And we ask the question, does religion even matter when we start talking about issues in the politics and issues in um, environment, issues of uh, coloniality? All these things have aspects and tinges of religion. So this is what we're talking about uh, in our episodes. And today's episode is actually quite interesting. It's just going to be uh, the three of us. I am Kirk Sandvig. I'm coming to you from San Diego, California. I'm joined by Janice McLean Farrell coming to you from the Bronx, New York, as well as Anderson Jeremiah coming to you from Lancaster, UK. And we're discussing the new docu-series surrounding Megan and Harry. It's created a lot of buzz, uh, both positive and negative. Um, but there's some aspects of this documentary and I've so far, I've only watched two and a half episodes and I, I, I don't, I don't know how far everyone else has gotten in the series as well. I know they just came out with a couple more just recently, uh, or three more, but I'm only at two and a half right now. And so far, I think it's quite revealing especially the third episode as we start really getting into issues of the colonial empire is issues of racism and issues of how this all interacts with the image of what England or Great Britain is all about and so I just wanted to open up the whole conversation here with everyone uh, and uh, just ask, what are you guys feeling so far in this series? And how do you think this kind of relates to our topics of religiosity? Well, do, do you want me to go first, Janice? Go ahead. Go ahead. Please, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I have to confess that I... I should, I should say we're people of the empire. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I've seen five of the episodes, and I, I, I couldn't uh, stay long enough last night to watch the the final episode. But I know the gist of um, uh, the, the the final episode as well. I think there are, if I could say, why this is of relevance for us in this particular conversation, is is the role of the monarchy, the role of the royal family within the context of, as Kirk said, the, the Great Britain um, the, and, and the legacies it has across the Commonwealth and, and also how it continues to play a very significant role within uh, the Church of England, uh, primarily because, um, you know, in the, in the documentary, it's Prince Charles, but he happens to be the king now, and he is the king of um, the, the the Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and of the Commonwealth. And also, most critically, is the supreme governor of the Church of England, and thereby the entire Anglican Communion. Uh, so there is there is a very significant. Uh, a religious connotation from a Christianity perspective, what's being um, unpacked through the experiences of Harry and Meghan is very critical uh, from a, a from a, a kind of a, a student of religion because very often we limit the role of religion to kind of sacred spaces. What this particular documentary shows is that the messiness of people's lives, no matter whether you live in the palace or in a, in a, in a council estate or in a, in a, in a, uh, in a place far removed from uh, civilization, so to speak, 
it's it's the messiness of people, the relationships, and all those kind of things. So for me, I think in the in as Kirk pointed out, you know, there's a fair measure of, uh, of freedom of expression, personal uh, well-being, mental health, how positions and power are sacrificed at the feet of social media, tabloid journalism, all these things. I think so. Yes, I, I I do agree with some people that as it is a critique of tabloid journalism, um, the Netflix series itself is uh, providing it in a tabloid style uh, manner. So it's it's very important to recognize yeah. that. Um, and it's I, I I say this as someone uh, sitting in a house that was built in 1862 uh, by a fair donation from a slave-holding family. <laughs> so that's how, this is a vicarage, how that's how it is all deeply embedded in everyday life of people. This is not something that is far removed. And I'll come back to some of those issues and possibly these are my initial comments that it is not... It's not a documentary that needs to be simply brushed aside as as a soap opera of the royal family or a black princess who couldn't carry on being a princess. But this is about institution, as they call it, that institution that permeates every aspect of life, at least in the United Kingdom, if not across the world. I I would I would pick up on that, pick up from there. Anderson, because I would argue that it's not just, it doesn't just permeate life in the UK. It permeates life globally because England and the UK and the monarchy is, is an example of not just the colonial process, but what continues to, to mark our world, that legacy. You know, so for me, as as a Jamaican, um, so I got to probably similar to to um, Kirk, two and a half episodes. Um, But I know one of the things that I continually remind myself is that when I go to Europe, and I see all this, the, the cathedrals and the palaces and um, all these tourist sites that people globally throng to, I have to continually remind myself that these, that the resources that built these places came from the rest of the world. <laughs> so it's either the gold from Spanish, Spanish America, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the gold or, natural resources that were mined from Africa or mined from the Caribbean or mined from the U.S. when it was a colony, that the, the, econ- the economic um, ventures that have fueled this whole, um, be the G8 or the G20, that much, you know, the, the economic proneness that these leading comp- um, countries have didn't come from a vacuum, they came from a particular system and religion was a part of that system. So it's, you know, that that first clip where it talks about um, how the slave, the slave um, ships were, the, those ventures were funded by the kings and queens of England. You know, they got skin in the game. <laughs> they have so much skin in the game. Um, and and the way that has continued to shape um, not just England but so many um, white majority countries mm. that it's it's not something for us to just gloss over. Yeah, and I think the and I think the the documentary does this fairly well. And it's, and I was talking to, to my wife, uh, about this as well. And, and we have, uh, kind of almost, um, uh, we have a very interesting reaction to the documentary. Uh, like for me personally, like 
I think that information is really interesting. I'm just not all that like all that interested in Harry and Megan. Um, I think that's just a good way of kind of spotlighting some of these issues by giving particularly the American context, someone that they can actually like latch onto, which many Americans are already kind of interested in that type of tabloid story of Megan and Harry. And so this allows for uh, the story of this history that has often been glossed over or forgotten to really be exposed. And, and as much as I, I dislike and disdain the, the whole tabloid aspect of the whole series and even the tabloid types of, uh, of paparazzi and all that stuff, the way that they're, they're kind of attacking many of these celebrities. I think the real story here from, from me personally, the what's most, most interesting for me is that aspect of learning about the history, because even in the documentary, they said within the past couple decades here, we've seemingly forgotten about this. Or we've glossed over it. And it's probably not something new. It's probably been around for a long period of time. It's just that aspect of this white privilege that has always been there. Even the understanding of white identity being an English or British or even American identity in our context is something that is taken for granted. And when you start bringing up issues that have long been neglected or glossed over, it also sparks up a lot of controversy and uh, I think that's a discussion that needs to happen. Even in the documentary, they said, we have not really discussed a lot of these issues. Mm. And in the rise of nationalism, whether it, you're talking about Brexit or uh, Christian na- uh, evangelical nationalism or whatever, I can't remember I what it's called right now in America, America but that understanding. Sorry. Exactly. That. The MAGA, the MAGA creed, it's calling not necessarily for greatness. It's calling for an aspect of whiteness. It's calling for an aspect of the glory without actually understanding what the glory entailed. And the documentary said it really well when they said Great Britain was great in the empire in that it created, but who paid the cost? Who paid that? Greatness for that greatness. And it was largely those people who we are still not acknowledging or victimizing in our portrayals of what's changing in our world or what's wrong with the change of our world, uh, whether it's the royal family or whether it's politics or whether it's other things. And that also brings into aspects of the current prime minister <laughs> of, of uh, the UK as well, uh, that the whole racial aspect of that has also played a major role into this as well. I, oh, sorry. Uh, the one thing I would say is while we push back on the paparazzi, um, there's a clip in the episodes where they talk about the power of that paparazzi in shaping the mindset of the people and even swaying the government. So we can't we can't overlook the power of the narrative. It's 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 being framed that way for a reason. <laughs> you know, it's it's having it's having those touch points to whiteness and being put upon and needing to save one's country um, for a particular reason. It's not done in a vacuum. So it's, I find it interesting when we look at, when we correlate Brexit with MAGA, with um, Harry and Meghan um, getting engaged and getting married, it's in the same time frame. And so you have all this, we need to preserve the purity of what is Britain or what is, you know, I guess in their minds, there's nothing as white as the monarchy. <laughs> you know, this is like a, a sacred call. And how do you preserve the purity of um, the, monar- the monarchy when you have this mixed race, God forbid, this mixed race woman who wants to become a part of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if I could frame it, I think what is what is important is history. How we how we understand history and how it is re-narrated, how it is uh, 
in many ways relived uh, through the monarchy, through the royal family, or through the institution, as they call it uh, in the documentary. And uh, I, I must make this uh, kind of a subversive um, um, uh, directorial touch in the documentary. I don't know, um, since I've seen the five episodes, the two important historians for the first time of many documentaries that I've seen, the two historians that are used in this documentary are black historians. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones who are right. telling the stories. They are the ones who are narrating and placing this entire story in context. Not some white uh, royal historian, not some uh, white uh, historian of European enlightenment. It is black historians who are particularly looking at the slave history of Britain and its legacies. And that completely changes the tone of the narrative. What is important here, it's not about right. the great loss of uh, the monarchy, but it's actually the story of the others who didn't fit in. It's the story of those who were at the receiving end of this entire process. So, and it's very interesting how very, uh, very interestingly it is portrayed. Harry uh, becomes a mouthpiece through whom Meghan is constantly compared to Diana. Mm. Diana as, uh, um, right. um, you know, um, as someone who couldn't fit in within this institution. So it transcends simple color uh, politics it actually, who can fit into this institution which has very clear expectations of obedience, obligations, and duty and service, not only to each other. So you, you keep whatever happens within the, um, the family, but you also sacrifice everything for the sake of the nation, for the country, in this case, uh, this Great Britain. Uh, basically, you you have to pay into that uh, uh, system. So, the history aspect of it, I think, as as Kirk pointed out, you know, I um, by having those two people, what has happened? I think this is I'm now reflecting primarily from the context of uh, United Kingdom, is that the same thing that these two people, particularly David Olasogo and Kende Andrews, both have been writing and talking about this colonial history for the past 15 years. But what has happened is that the visibility of that story in this last six episode is far greater because it was part of the story of the royal family. Mm -hmm. And very interestingly, I think there were a lot of people, again, speaking from my experience of teaching this story, they never saw these two things together. The story of slavery, colonialism, and everything was always operates in a different level, in a different space, as opposed to the discussions about the royal family, as if they are not part of it. What this story brings and this relooking of history does is that Actually, by having Megan at the heart of the story, these two worlds collide. Mm. You can't understand colonialism, slavery without understanding the royal family, and you can't understand the royal family without understanding the other, because they both come and play in the life of Megan. And that's why I think, uh, as, as Janice pointed out, I think in, in Britain, I think they, uh, when Meghan decided to uh, leave along with Harry to Canada and then to United States, they termed it as Mexit. They called it Mexit, mm -hmm. like Meghan leaving Britain. Yeah. So like Brexit, mm -hmm. it's become Mexit. So basically, you can understand how these are political manifestations of a deeply held idea of the royal family symbolizing whiteness, Britishness, and the European nature of it, where others who belong to different worlds, you know, you, you can you can host the leaders of the Commonwealth, they are all welcome, but they, they can never be part of the family, the institution. They're always mm. 
uh, at the at the at the service of the family rather than part of the family. And Megan complicated that relationship. That is true. And I think that comp- you find that complication in so many aspects of identity and race mm-hmm. and ethnicity and all that. That, that complicates, it's so complicated here in the United States, but it's so complicated in, uh, also in the UK, where you have this understanding of what it means to be British, what it means to be American. And uh, I, talked, I talk about this with my students all the time when I'm teaching courses on Asian American studies, is that for many Asian Americans, there's always going to be this understanding of being an outsider, no matter what. I have students of mine that are third, fourth, fifth generation Asian Americans, longer than my family's been here. And yet they are never considered fully mm-hmm. American. They're always going to be the perpetual mm-hmm. outsider. And when problems arise, it's going to be, well, it's going to be this immigrant problem immigrant problem. But it's never indicated who the immigrant actually is, it's implied that it's someone who's from a non-European, non-white country. That's the problem. Even though many of those ethnicities have been in the country longer than many of these European and and white uh, nationalities and ethnicities that have been coming in as well. So that framing of the issue, the framing of, of what's happening in terms of identity is also bleeding out here in the in the the documentary about who is considered to be in and out, and in politics, who's considered to be legitimate mm-hmm. British or not or illegitimate British, and how can we kind of look at that? Even even like I said before, the the Prime Minister uh, Sunak, how how his identity is portrayed in the media is quite fascinating. Yeah, you know the the. the- one of the problems in in Britain, for example, is that majority of people don't actually know that the royal family's original heritage is from Germany. They they are not actually English. Yeah. Uh, whatever that means, because you know, here is the family that epitomizes what constitutes as English and white and British is itself is not actually from this land. They have come via marriage and have occupied this place. So this is where the skin color becomes a big important issue because race is is the subtext of all this conversation. So in Britain, I think uh, one of the problem is that it is right from the beginning how Meghan was portrayed in the British media. So. Mm-hmm. Even though she had very little to do with Hollywood, she was always portrayed as this Hollywood glamorous actress uh, who has come uh, chasing Prince Harry as a gold digger, as someone who has come to uh, occupy that space. The problem is that in in the public popular perception, yes, our Hollywood actress is glamorous, all fine, but they are less in terms of respectability, because mm-hmm. they are, there is there is this kind of uh, expression in, in British media as loose women. They are mm-hmm. not trustworthy. They are not the people. Mm-hmm. And this is the same expression that was very often allocated to those who are from different color, those who are uh, uh, from black, brown. You know, this happens in every context. So black women, Brown women, they're all somehow loose in their character. They are easily uh, commodified as opposed to. Uh, so it's very interesting, even though, uh, you know, she had this kind of uh, tagline as a Hollywood actress, glamorous person coming in. There was that condens- conden- a kind of uh, a condescending note attached to it right from the beginning. and uh, And especially when you have a very strong, independently opinionated person to come into that space in the person of Megan, and everybody now that, uh, you know, I've been following um, some of the Twitter 
conversations around those who were very fiercely defending the royal family, saying how Harry and Meghan have uh, uh, deeply disappointed everybody and failed in their duty to the country by sharing all their personal matters in the public realm. The problem is, I think the the, the understanding of the role of human beings in these institutional structures where Megan, as an independent-minded person, wanted to express her own views, she was never allowed to do that. And this is where the institution uh, comes out rather shabbily because one of the things that uh, comes out very clear through the documentary is that how this institution was pretty much sold out to the media. Um, um, tabloid uh, media without any journalism, journalistic integrity. It was primarily feeding a particular image to the people because it's almost kind of a, kind of a big brother mm -hmm. show what happens in the palace. And nobody is really interested in the seriousness of their lives. And I, what comes across is that this is where how people of color are treated because they are often lower than the norm, which is the whiteness. So white people are the people who lead serious life. People of color from other racial categories somehow do not lead serious life. They, they, their life is somehow substandard in comparison mm -hmm. to the white lives. So if someone stands up and shouts, they are easily characterized as shouty and uh, angry uh, uh, women who wanted to take revenge and things like that. So easy tropes that are used to uh, reduce the validity of their critique. And very interestingly, even white women who criticize the institution, like Diana, are pushed into the same category. Mm -hmm. I find it, you know, as, as a black woman, I find it very, when, when you put like, um, Megan, what's what's William's wife, Catherine? Yeah, Kate. Kate. When you put the two of them together, it 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 is it it's a very interesting comparison. You have Megan as a mixed race black woman who is accomplished in her own right, mm. activist, um, UN ambassador, all of these things, and and Kate. <laughs> She has a she has a university degree, but it's it's uh, you're you're onto Anderson. You're onto something about um, the whole trope around when a black woman or a woman of color uses her voice, mm -hmm. the way she is perceived as you're angry, you're you're too aggressive. You um, you don't fit, you know. So all if 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 a if a white man epitomizes those skills, he is a natural born leader. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and everything, but it's Bojo. But yeah. if a black woman or a, another minority woman um, embodies those things, then it's a it, it's almost like you need to contain it, oh, yeah. you know. So so what I what I heard. Even from um, the, her narration of her journey was once the news broke about the relationship, her her life, which was very global, far-reaching, progressively got uh, insular, and so. Um, you have this person who's very accomplished in her own right, bringing a lot to the table and having what she brings to the table being basically disregarded as rubbish because it, it doesn't fit. Um, it doesn't fit the formats within the institution um, in terms of what, what a member or what Harry's wife, the ideal wife should look like. And race is a big part of that. But I think uh, to to like 
push back against that a little bit uh, is just is to highlight and again. I was making this comparison last night when I was looking at the the documentary and looking at all the different um, ways in which the uh, the royal family is being portrayed, how it's being viewed from the outside, as well as uh, making the comparison to how many people view religion, especially m- many of my students who view religion as something that is quite negative, unilateral, that's very oppressive, that's out there in the world. And I'm not denying that it that these things aren't true, but it also discounts so many of those, those aspects in which the Royal family does so much institutional good out there in the world in terms of charity, bring understandings of what it does for uh, highlighting some of these issues. Um, I see you guys laughing, uh, but, My apologies. Uh, Sorry. but it's, but it, no, but no, well, the thing is, like, whether it's regard to like the soldiers or whether it's regard to other aspects of like highlighting aspects of of famine in the world, even though it's probably uh, self induced um, aspects of problems that are out there in the world, there are they are doing some PR that's out there to highlight some of these issues that oftentimes gets glossed over. Same thing with religion. Religion does so much good that's out there, and many people perceive aspects of. Uh, doing mission work in different parts of the world as also oppressive, but also there are some good aspects of it as well. Things that are doing for medical advancement or dealing with people who aren't able to get resources that are available to them. And so whether it's religion in general or the Royal family, there are these aspects and the same thing can go, can be said that Megan in all of her previous endeavors have, has also been doing all this stuff already. She would fit perfectly into many of those similar types of charitable, um, institutional, uh, patterns and, and programs that are, that are there. But again, everything, all of that stuff just gets, Whisked, whisked off the table, and it just becomes more back into an aspect of the problem yeah, of her no, race. You're, you're, I, I, I take your point, Scott, but the, the problem is, I think, you, let's take it just on the face value that the royal family is, uh, is doing a wonderful PR job. They are a very expensive PR company. Uh, just, just to put it in, just to put <laughs> it in perspective, right. I think the royal family, the taxpayers pay millions millions of pounds to live in this gilded life where, you know, right now, millions of people are struggling to put one meal a day while the royal family is insured of millions of pounds of taxpayers' money. To what end? So that's that's my one very simplistic question. Yeah. But the second question, I think, you know, uh, Let's 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 uh, unpack this idea that they do so much of good. Yes, they you know one of the ways that they are understood in Britain, for example, is that one of the justification for providing uh, so much of uh, uh, governmental uh, funding to the royal family is the fact that they functioned like kind of soft diplomats of the government. So that is why, for example, just you know Prince Charles before he became the king, he's a big advocate of climate change and uh, he wanted to bring into conversation about ethical living, all those kind of things. Great job. But the problem, the previous prime minister, uh, who didn't last very long, Liz Truss, uh, basically told Prince Charles and later King Charles not to go to COP27 in Egypt because his position of advocating climate change and climate emergency is opposed to the government. So Charles didn't actually go to COP27 for the first time in his whole career. He has made it to all the previous uh, COP uh, uh, gatherings. This was the first one just when he became the king. So this is where my problem is because they are Mm -hmm. basically bidding the policies of the government in power. Mm-hmm. So my question is, why do we need to have a royal family? This I'm going to be getting a lot of uh, backlash on. My, my critical question is, do we need to have such an expensive PR 
soft diplomatic role paid by the people to do what? So every time they fly out, it has to be in a private jet. It has to be in a, the whole thing costs millions of pounds across the Commonwealth. And we saw what happened when they went to some of the Caribbean nations. And basically people told them, oh, we don't need you, go back. Mm -hmm. We don't need the royal family, go back. Give that money so that we can actually start. And this is where the question of reparations come into play. For five centuries, the royal fa family benefited from exploiting the world. What happened to all those resources? You go and, you know, one of the things that uh, you will see in the documentary is that where they have all been living, including um, Harry and Meghan, you know, Meghan could never uh, afford yeah. living in such kind of big houses. Who paid for all that? And even within England, the kind of houses they live in, uh, they're all kind of provided by the tax mm -hmm. and expenses from people's lives. So my question on the on the issue of uh, on the uh, issue of does it not uh, helpful to look at the good they are doing? You need to actually weigh it opposed to the cost of that doing good, and that apply that that applies to religion as well. So, you, and this is one of the big reasons why, for the first time in Britain, you know, less than forty-five percent of people have identified themselves as Christians because of the institutional religion. Because Christianity was the institutional religion in Britain. And they have acted with a sense of entitlement and privilege. Common people don't associate with that type of religion. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger. And, you know, as much as people now really uh, uh, care about the royal family, but when push comes to shove, they really don't care about, bother about the royal family. And I think if if the current economic situation continues, we could, you know, we, the Labour government, the, the Labour political party has already indicated, you know, they are going to abolish the House of Lords, one of the important instruments of the monarchical structure in in the United Kingdom. They want to say, we don't want to, that, to allow that type of structure where favours are shown to people if you are good on a particular political uh, spectrum, you are rewarded by given a place in the House of Lords. And that's how the House of Lords is populated. Because basically the kings and queens populated those places with their supporters, including the bishops of Church of England. Uh -huh. And now the Labour government or the Labour political party is actually made it public that we want to reform the parliamentary system. We want to keep an upper house, but they want to go down in the route of the Senate in the United States, where say, let the upper house be elected by people rather than people receiving favors because they have done something good to those who are in power. And that will affect directly Church of England and other churches because the church, as, as the institutional religion, was getting a lot of favors because it was very close to the power. And I think this is where uh, uh, what I see, and probably Janice will be able to expand on this more, I think the, the growth of independent churches, the growth of free Christian communities, which are not part of any of the uh, mainstream churches, mostly populated by immigrants, populated by people of different racial and ethnic background, is going to be a huge uh, challenge for mainstream churches in England. Mm -hmm. the, 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 one thing, the one thing I would, um, before I, I speak to what Anderson said, in, in response to you, Kirk, about the good they do, um, 
yes, it's good PR, but it doesn't necessarily deal with the issues on ground that precipitate the good that they do. You know, mm-hmm. so so Harry could Harry could go to Botswana and help to fund that facility, but it didn't necessarily deal with the conditions that made the the funding of this facility necessary in the first place. And so that's that's the issue I have with the good that you do. I guess the same thing happens for religion. We can we can we can put the band-aid on the wound, but we don't necessarily deal with the conditions that create the wound in the first place. Um, in terms of in terms of the, the growth of the independent um, churches in, in the UK, the, the, the first thing that came to mind was in the 1950s when the Afro-Caribbean came, the Afro-Caribbean immigrants, well, the, the Afro-Caribbean citizens came, let me put them in their proper place because they came as citizens. Many of them were Anglicans. Some of them were Anglicans, showed up at the door and the vicar met them at the door and said, please don't come back on Sunday. And so even even that history, the the grappling with that history um, is something that's needed. And I think the growth of the nuns, you know, when I compare the UK to the US, um, the one thing that's saving the the religious numbers in the US are the immigrants that that kind of um buttress the numbers. So be it the Latino immigrants in the Catholic Church or the immigrants in other mainline churches to kind of push the numbers up when they're much more stark if you're just looking at white adherents. But I think in, in the UK in the UK context, you don't have as much buttressing of the numbers. And so it's a lot more starker um, in that context than it is. And then when you look at the churches that are growing and bursting at the seams, it's just a matter of time before those churches begin to become more politically involved. Um, when I, I think of the Pentecostal church um that I did my research on in London, um, one of the things I heard, especially from the the black immigrant males, the second generation and onwards, was the need for political engagement, that it wasn't this kind of head in the ground kind of religion. We're just going to let, you know, the events of the, the, the society pass over us. Um, they, the ones who stayed because there was a massive exodus you had. So within the black British religious landscape in the seventies, you had a whole exodus of second generation, um, young people from the churches because they said the churches weren't grappling with the very contextual issues that they were dealing with in the society from, you know, the stopping um, in the U.S. is stop and frisk. In the, in the U.K., it's the sus laws, the um, political, the engagement with the um, with police, um, just the, the racism and discrimination across the board in education, all of the, these things. And so you had some turning to like Rastafarianism or other religions because Christianity wasn't cutting it. So you had some who stayed and the ones who stayed are pushing more for some political engagement. So I I foresee that becoming more of more front and center. I I wouldn't be surprised to see some of them running for to become MPs and speaking into the process of um, local government and probably even more. So. um. In many ways, the UK may be a foreshadowing of where the US is going, especially if you tap down on immigration in particular ways, um, because it's I, I believe it's only the immigrant numbers that are floating the ones in the US. And it's it's not those numbers are not a true representation of what's going on in the, from a religious standpoint, because you have the presence of so many immigrants there. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I see that also in the United States 
budding to a certain degree. Like I look at contexts such as like uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, where which has a huge um, immigrant population uh, from largely from Africa, but also from 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 Asia to a certain degree as well. A lot of refugees coming from Asia, like the Hmong population, and you're seeing much more representation amongst those communities. But there's there's always that mm-hmm. slight pushback by the institution that, well, they're not, are they legitimate? Are they really citizens here? Even the, like the, the old tagline for, for president Obama is like, let me see those birth records. Are you actually a citizen here? There's always that type of racism. It's not even subtle. It's just blatant racism saying, Yes, but you're not you're not who we are as a nation, as an institution. And that just gets right back into the documentary as well. And, and with all those claims about what it means to be a part of this identity, whether it's the royal uh, family, whether it's what it means to be British, what it means to be American, what it means to be all these different aspects of identities that are there, they're all playing their part and there's always someone who's saying yeah but you're not you're not fitting in in this regard and i think that'll it'll take a lot longer in the united states for that shift but i i, I think happen. I, I think part of the issue is how you tell this story because for example in the u.s the the irish and jews were at one time were not white you know when they when they first came off the boat they were yeah. other. So if you look at, if you, if you go back to the late 1800s yeah. and you look at the, the the ways they were portrayed in the popular newspapers, they weren't portrayed as whites. They were portrayed as the ones who are coming to, um, you know, make the country more Catholic <laughs> because it's a country of Protestants. Um but you also you also have to fast forward to the the ways in which you have probably let go of, especially in second generations and, and you know ensuing ones, let go of parts of your cultural identity to become white, to become you know what have you given up in in the in the assimilation process? Right. But you know, fortunately, unfortunately, those of us with different phenotypes, at no point in time can we you know, get rid of the color of our skin to to assimilate. You you have some assimilation going on in terms of, you know, what I say to students in my immigration class, we don't have people, we don't have a problem with the Obamas. <laughs> they're, they're the good black people. <laughs> um, you know, very proper, well-educated, um, even, even with the racial stuff, they're not going to go ratchet on you. Um, you know, so it's, it's the, it's the levels of assimilation. Um, it's, it's the, the cost, the things that you are willing to sacrifice. Like, and I guess that's, that's one of the words I, I heard in the documentary. What are you willing to sacrifice for the institution is a beast and it demands a lot. What will you sacrifice for the institution? Um, and so the, the, the identity, the identity isn't a neutral thing. It's a beast and it demands a lot. And what will you sacrifice for that institution? Um, so whiteness, whiteness demands that you, you know, it, it's, there's something that needs to be offered on the altar of whiteness for you to then reap the benefits of it. And it's a continual process. It's not a, this is not a one and done. <laughs> this is not Jesus is the only sacrifice. This is a continual process that has to be engaged in and entered into um, to maintain it um, and to say continue to reap the benefits of it. Yeah, uh, to 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 just carry on that conversation, I think it is that's where belonging comes into play. I think. Only when you sacrifice whatever is required of this beast, 
you, you will be allowed, you will belong. If you question, if you challenge, you have no space in it. And I think this is this is part of the problem. I think uh, many of us, you know, are, you know, I've been living in this country for now 18 years. Uh, you still, you know, as uh, you may have picked up, you know, one of the other big things that happened in the royal family in the last couple of uh, weeks was that one of the senior most royal household asked a black woman entrepreneur who was there on invitation to the royal family asking where you're from, where you're really from. Because that question is foregrounded on the notion that you somehow don't belong. You don't belong because we don't see you as belonging to this place. So that actually propels a whole lot of racism in this country because this idea uh, of you not fitting in. And uh, what is what has been very interesting in terms of the conversation most recently is the fact that all those people, high-level politicians, who are talking about curbing immigration, curbing about curbing asylum seekers, restricting all those uh, people who are coming via small boats across the English Channel, or people of color. For me, these are the people who have sacrificed their very identity to be part of this system, this institution. Yes, Rishi Sunak is the prime minister. Yes, Suela Braverman is the home secretary. Yes, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, one who, one who grew up in a plantation, he very proudly says. Um, these are the people, but these are the people who are defending the policies of a government, His Majesty's government, that keeping asylum seekers, refugees who are fleeing from some of the most difficult country, uh, uh, contexts, and also making life very difficult for people in this country who are who belong to different ethnic racial background because they don't belong. And this is the this is the complexity of how when systems appropriate individuals uh, into that that institutional frame of reference that uh, you know I I normally call this as you know when you are particularly in, in United Kingdom airports often in the immigration checks it'll be the immigrants who will be asked to be the keepers of the control border. Not the, not the people who are uh, sitting safely behind, uh, the people who are doing all the, uh, you know, uh, uh, work at the fence or people who have crossed over. They are the immediate people who will be uh, inflicting more pain and uh, um, uh, torture on those who are and this can be seen in the colonial history in India, in other parts of the world. It's not just the white colonizers who inflicted pain. It's the domesticated servants who caused more pain on the colonial subjects than the colonizers themselves. And the same thing being played out, the what Meghan and Harry system uh, exposes, the documentary exposes is that Megan, you know, we are not glorifying Megan, but for all, all the things that she has done, she resisted being bought into a system. Mm -hmm. And she cannot be tolerated. Mm -hmm. they, they, when you were talking, Anderson, the thought that kept um, going through my mind is this has already happened. <laughs> Historically, the colonial process was, it was able to thrive and flourish because... As Fanon says, you have the, is it black face, white mask? You have yeah. internalized the colonial civilization, Christianization processes, and it still continues. You know, the, the, uh, one of the things I'll, I'll say to, to students when I'm talking about the, like the Christianization of the Caribbean, I say, yes, you look at doctrine, but you also look at clothes. <laughs> you know, why should, 
a person going to church on a Sunday wear the three-piece suit, polyester suit, and have sweat washing him in the tropics. You should be in some natural fibers. But that's for you to be, you know, within the Caribbean context, for you to be Christian and to be civilized and to be cultured meant this is how you dressed. And it's not, it's not just a dress, it's respectability, it's status, it's um, comportment, it's, it's all of these things. The belonging, the belonging comes with so much, um, so much respectability, status, position. Um, and so when we, when we think of the, you know, who belongs, who doesn't belong, what sacrifices you make to belong. Um, it's recognizing that it's not just the belonging isn't just this zero sum game. It's attached to so much. There, there, there's so much attached to belonging um, that drives that sacrifice and the ongoing sacrifice as well. And part of that is that it's the, you almost, you, one of the things in, I, I think back to one of the texts I read by Mary Chamberlain, and she was talking about this, the colonial process in the Caribbean was that education could whiten you, you know, so you could have very dark skin, but if you, the Christianization civilization process could whiten you to the point where you became the black British man or black English man. And that meant something that, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not new, but it's, it's an history, it's a history, even say within the Caribbean or within the, the Commonwealth, we have yet to grapple with seriously. And I think we see this here in the United States quite often as well, uh, um, where there's this type, type of in club when it comes to race that you give a sense of freedom if you're a part of the club. So for instance, my wife's name is Annie and my last name is Sandvik. She took my last name and she speaks with a Midwestern accent. She was born in Iowa. She happens to be Asian, uh, Asian American, but she was born in Iowa. She's grew up in the Midwest, the United States. She has that accent. And when she, she did with her job, she speaks mostly to her clients over the phone. Mm -hmm. And she's always amazed given her name and the way that she sounds, how free people are with their racism directly to her, mm -hmm. not to her face, but to her ears with the understanding that you're one of us. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have a freedom to, to talk in a certain way about others. Mm -hmm. But if they actually, if, if there was actually a video conference, I think the tone would be completely different. Yes, it would. At least I assume that would be. No, I, so I have, I have evidence of this. <laughs> so um, my husband, um, his first name's Alan. And um, we had to take the car into the shop to get, it, it got dented. So we had to take it in to get, get it fixed. And so he was talking to the person who owns the shop over the phone and, um, you know, proper English, <laughs> that's his diction. And um, he finally showed up as this Afro-Caribbean, African-American black man, six, I think he was six two. <laughs> and so the owner of the shop, um, so the, the, the plumber is next door to the shop and somebody from the one of the vans had run into the front of our, our car. So the, the owner of the plumbing company, they were paying for the cost. So he had been in um, conversations with the owner of the plumbing company. So the owner of the plumbing company says to the owner of the auto shop, I was surprised to see a black man when Alan showed up. Because for all intents and purposes, he expected a white man to show up. And so I've, I've heard multiple stories or narratives of um, when, you t when you're talking to somebody, because if, you know, you have these white sounding names, 
um, and they they interview you over the phone. And when you show up for the face to face interview, you could you 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 know you see the the face drop when they realize they're face to face with a black woman or a woman and not the white woman that they thought they would get so yes it's very common it's more well, common it's, it's, than you may think it's quite think. interesting since we are talking about media i think uh, there's another show that uh, bbc is doing um the the, the place of class and um, race what was fascinating was that in BBC, which is the kind of flagship uh, broadcaster in Britain, which talks about, which preserves the Queen's uh, English or, or the royal mm. way of speaking. What they found out, they did a survey, it seems, that um, in Britain or in the United Kingdom, um, only 12% speak that English. The English, the proper English. Uh, however, in in the media uh, programming that is in the BBC, in the whole uh, percentage of people of newsreaders across the country, seventy percent of all, all news recent readers are from that twelve percent. So what it's doing is that. You can get into, this is just in one organization, this is just in BBC, there are other channels. So what's being legitimized, this is the proper accent that that is mm-hmm. that can be classified as proper English. So if you speak with any accent, like Liverpool or Scottish or anything, you can't be in the main uh, um, um, sections of the news. You, you can be in the regions, but not in the main. And this has implications for how the institution, the royal family, becomes a symbol of all these kind of preserves of privilege. Um, and in, in a way, legitimizing certain ways of being British. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the honest list, you know, members of the British Empire, you know, it's, it's bonkers that we they are still giving out all these honors. Uh, a knight in the British Empire, uh, uh, the the you know uh, member of the British uh, Empire or Baroness of the British Empire, because this idea of yeah, true that we the British Empire has uh, has seen its best of its days, but this nostalgia, the legacy is lived out every day in today's context. And and I think what, for me at least, what comes through this documentary is that the unraveling of the, all of that privilege, which was very secretly held and never shared in public, has been now being shared in public in not in a glorious light, and and what is angering a lot of white people, the person who instrumentalized that is Megan. And, you know, that's why, you know, later on you will see in the documentary uh, why there's a lot of investment. Literally, people are investing in hate accounts within social media who are seeking to end or kill Megan. There's this hatred Mm -hmm. that's being generated Hmm. by predominantly white communities because they can't take the fact that a mixed-race woman has pretty much triggered uh, an analysis of the royal family. They could could tolerate Mm -hmm. Diana. Hmm. She was one of them, but she felt... Yeah, she felt some grace because, you know, she again, why why they all ended up disliking her is that she actually fell in love with a Arab Muslim. That was again racially accentuated. And that's why they were very willing to accept the fact that, you know, she has fallen from grace. And so that is the end if it happens. 
you know, we all know what happened to uh, Prince Andrew. Lot of evidence. He's still walking about. He's still accepted in the society right. in the royal gatherings. Yes, he doesn't see show up in royal uh, uh, events, but nothing has happened to him, and that's privilege. Mm-hmm. A man who was right. photographed with a yeah. young woman, with a clear relationship with a pedophile, uh, an abuser continues to exercise his place and power uh in this country because he's the prince of a royal family but a woman of color questions how people are treated yeah. she becomes the villain mm-hmm. and that 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 applies to villain <laughs> well on that uh, yeah right Yeah, exactly. And you see that a lot of these cover-ups happening as well and people are still out there at large as well because they have positions of power or the the institution doesn't want to deal with those unfavorable and deplorable actions of a few. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today. This was quite uh enlightening. given the the nature of the the docu series i think the docu series just opens up or unmasks so much of this and so it was great to kind of get into much of these issues that uh that we're dealing with uh both in the united states but also in the uk and all around the world as we've all been touched by some form of uh aspects of colonialism aspects of of uh ways in which certain people have control and power and want to maintain that control and power and what race religion and uh politics all have to do with that. So thank you Janice, thank you Anderson. I look forward to uh thank you. seeing you guys again soon. Thank you. Now if you enjoy this podcast or think that somebody else might enjoy it, please share it. help spread the the word about religion matters so that we can reach a much wider audience we think this information is vital to our understanding of the world and how religion interacts with it so again please help support our podcast by sharing it in any way you find appropriate and if you'd like to reach out to us uh, have any comments or suggestions or any sort of feedback at all please contact us at religionmatters2@gmail.com that's religionmatters the number 2@gmail.com thank you your hosts for this podcast are Janice McLean Farrell the Dick Romaine assistant professor of metro urban ministry and assistant dean of doctoral studies at New Brunswick Theological Seminary Anderson Jeremiah is the senior lecturer in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University and me. I am Kirk Sandvig of Chapman University and San Diego State University. This podcast has been brought to you with support from Chapman University, San Diego State University, University of Lancaster and New Brunswick Theological Seminary. Thank you for your continued support.